0: This is Tony LeGrecker, and this is The Courage to Hope. Tonight's guest is Catherine Cullen. And some of you on the South Shore might know Catherine from being the reverend at the First Parish Church in Duxbury for the past, how many years, Catherine?
1: 19.
0: 19 years. Well, that's a a good long stay. I Uh, would
1: say so. (laughs)
0: were Were you the first female
1: reverend? I was. So the congregation was first gathered in 1632. Uh, we were the first group to have split away from the pilgrims um at in Plymouth. And we split away not in a, a mean way. The farmers out in Ducks Ducksboro it was called at the time. Uh were tired of having to schlep all the way back to Plymouth for church every Sunday. Church was mandatory back then. I wish it were, I wish it were now. <laughs> yeah. Uh not really, but um also, every Sunday, they would have church in the morning for three hours, and then they would have a little lunch, and then they'd have town meeting. So church and state were not separate back then. Church and state were, were combined. So the farmers who spread out into Duxbury, which is 12 miles away from Plymouth, they needed to come back to Plymouth every Sunday. And, you know, when we drive from Duxbury to Plymouth now, it takes about I don't know, eight minutes or something. But they were going by uh, wagon. They would pile all the kids and and their uh, food for lunch in the wagon. And it took them a couple of hours to go down and a couple of hours to go back. So after 12 years, there were probably 35 of them or so out that way. And they petitioned the the governor of Massachusetts, Governor Bradford, to make a separate parish. in the word town really wasn't used back then it was called a parish because as I say it was a combination of church and state so the uh Governor Bradford allowed that we are the you'll see a lot of first parish churches around New England but we are the first first parish and so uh of course they didn't have a woman spiritual leader back then and I am the first one in the history of the church since 1632.
0: so like uh, almost 400 years.
1: Yeah, right. But I mean, you know, um, women being ordained is a fairly new thing in the Protestant tradition and in other traditions, in the Catholic tradition, women are still not ordained. Women, Significant numbers of women being ordained has only been around in the last 30 years or so. Uh, It was a long time before the Episcopal tradition ordained women um southern baptist as we know they just reiterated the fact that they are not going to affiliate with any church that ordains women um so uh the jewish tradition has had female rabbis for about 30 or 40 years uh but it's it's a new thing so it's not it's not uh extraordinary that I'm the first woman since 1632 it's really a 20 20th, late 20th, early 21st century phenomenon to have female clergy as the leader of a religious institution.
0: And in, in addition to that, you've also were involved with, with the Buddhist, um, and you got your you you, do you say ordained as the Buddhist teacher. Yes, you teacher? do
1: say ordained. Um, yep, I. Um, so I discovered when you're, I'm a Unitarian Universalist, which is not a particular faith. Tradition in the sense that we don't have a creed or a set of beliefs or that we hold in common. It's really the opposite. Everybody uh, follows their own spiritual path in our tradition. So um, I was looking for some spiritual path that was really meaningful to me. And I found Buddhism. I, I looked at Buddhism in my late twenties. Uh, I went down to the Providence Zen Center in Rhode Island and explored Buddhism. And that was, believe it or not, like any other religious tradition, there's a spectrum of beliefs And in, uh, in Buddhism. There are conservative Buddhists and there are progressive Buddhists. So I looked at the Providence Zen Center, which I consider much more of the conservative Buddhists, uh, where the women have to sit in the back of the room. And it was just a very strict practice. When we would meditate down there, there'd be a guy coming around and he'd whack you with a stick on your back if you moved. <laughs> and I mean, you know, Tony, that's not part of what we do. So I was kind of turned off to Buddhism. And after I dipped my toe in that uh, kind of Buddhism, but about 10 years later, I discovered Thich Nhat Hanh and Tony is a practitioner also of Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, an amazing progressive Buddhist. Uh, and um, I just started studying with a Dharma teacher, um, Joanne Friday. And after five years, I got ordained as an order member in in Thich Nhat Hanh's tradition. Uh, yeah, we just lost him a couple of years ago. Like two years ago, he passed away, but, um, Really wonderful, wonderful spiritual teacher, and uh, changed Buddhism because he was more progressive about women. Uh, women are um, in his monastic uh, situation as well. They had female uh, monks and male monks, and they really they they had equal power. And then he had the lay people who he ordained, and there were women and men in that. But So he had that approach. But I think he's also very well known for what's called engaged Buddhism. So and this kind of goes along with what I'm doing now in my life. So um, if you think about the Buddha, you think about people meditating and sitting, and that's a part of our practice. But the more conservative uh, types of Buddhism believe that you meditate for your own salvation, shall we say, so that you can reach nirvana and Thich Nhat Hanh believed I have a beautiful uh, graphic that he did in my house here it says peace in my heart peace in the world and Thich Nhat Hanh believed that we one of the reasons to uh, meditate is to ground ourselves and calm ourselves and become peaceful so that we can go out into the world and do uh, respond to the needs of the world coming from that energy of peace, as opposed to energy of fear, which we could have in today's environment, energy of anger, which we could have in today's environment. But when you come at, at the world from that energy of peace, from in my experience, you see very clearly what is needed and how you can help uh, make the world a better place. So I just took to his tradition, like, you know, a duck to water. And, um, it just changed my life. I mean, the practice of of meditation changed my life. I was a trial attorney before I was a minister about almost 20 years. So I was a super type A. (laughs) I was one of the first women in Boston who owned a a trial law firm and I was in court all the time. And I was a real type A, you know, kind of tightly wound uh, person. And, um, it's so interesting how meditation, uh, which meditation actually changes your uh, your neural pathways in your brain, it changes your mind and your brain. And I am, I couldn't probably muster up a, a big argument today if you if you paid me. That that's not to say I couldn't be an effective lawyer. I would just um, make my argument coming from a different place. So um, yeah. So the Buddhist, I'm a Unitarian Universalist minister with a Buddhist spiritual practice.
0: Okay, so now um, up to this this year, you've decided to give it all up and move to Florida. (laughs) Right. um, uh, Which is the reason why I have you on, and you're saying you're going to go down to Florida and make good trouble.
1: Uh, Exactly. Exactly. Exactly.
0: So what is the, I mean, your family is here. So what is your motivation to pack up and leave? What is driving you down to Florida? Yeah.
1: So as I said earlier, I was a trial lawyer in the first part of my professional life. And um, I was all, but I was always very active in community service and very active in politics. So um, uh, those stirrings have led me to come to a decision that I've loved parish ministry. I've done it for 19 years and I had, I did two years at another church before I came to First Parish Duxbury. But um, I look at this landscape today, I'll tell you the thing that really turned me was when Roe v. Wade was kicked out by the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, as a young, I remember studying you know uh, the early Supreme Court decisions when I was a law student, and I so revered the idea of a Supreme Court and the pr- idea of precedent, it made such sense to me. And then, of course, when Roe v. Wade came into to uh, the legal <clears throat> lexicon, there, I um, I just felt that, and and that was, you know, and and the years went by, and it was it was uh, continually uh, upheld. It just felt to me like that reproductive rights for women was settled, it's what we call in the legal end of things, settled law. And when the current U.S. Supreme Court could find a way, and I have read the opinions, um, can, could find a way to... Uh, get rid of Roe v. Wade, I was stunned. I mean, when the draft came out, I don't know if you remember the draft of the opinion was leaked, which was kind of extraordinary in and of itself. Yes, I do. I refused to believe that that was going to be the final opinion. I said, well, it's leaked. And, you know, maybe the justices will see how uh, controversial this is and how it is not the will of the people. And when it actually came out, I, I was stunned. I mean, I we, I, I, we had a rally, I'm a, I'm a big vigil rally person uh, in front of the church, we invited, you know, the public and it was huge. And um, people from all walks of life were against getting rid of Roe v. Wade, you don't have to necessarily be the, a person who a woman who would uh, have an abortion to feel that women in general need the right to choose. So uh you can have people who might you know they would they would never have an abortion in their life no maybe if their life were in danger but um that would be it but they would still support a woman's right to choose it's such a fundamental right for women and women's lives changed dramatically after that fundamental right came into being I mean that's why women like me became lawyers and trial lawyers and owned law firms and and that sort of thing. And then went on to ministry and became the first woman minister since 1632. I think so much of that is dependent upon a woman's right to choose. So I was stunned and it made my head spin when Roe v. Wade was booted out. And I, so much of what I see happening on the landscape today has to do with, um, legal things that are just shifting that that I decided that I could be of service best by going back into law and um, focusing on me. Re- re- you have to pick one area. I'm pretty unhappy about the gay, lesbian, trans stuff that's going on across the country. I mean, there's, there are many issues that I'm unhappy about the, that I could go out from a legal perspective but um, you have to pick one and the one that really calls to me right now is reproductive rights for women. Uh, i've got a bunch of grandkids i've got a bunch of granddaughters and i i want them to have the same rights that i did. you know roe v wade was the the or the decision to boot it out was the first us supreme court decision that took a right away. You, that's so extraordinary that to, to have our Supreme court decide to take a right that had been available to, to people for 50 years away. Uh, so I looked at my little grandchildren, my granddaughters and, and my grandsons, they're the folks that they'll the women they'll be involved with. And I just said, you know, I've loved being a parish minister, but I need to use my legal expertise in, uh, in this area, um, because otherwise I'll feel really helpless about what what's going on in our country right now. So um, I have always found it's just to back up a little bit. I remember when I was moving from uh, law to ministry. I owned a law firm, as I said. I we had a blended family of six kids, and my youngest kid was two at the time i started seminary and i was still practicing law i practiced law all the way through seminary and i remember so many people saying to me how is this ever going to work out you own a law firm with all these cases and and you've got a 2 year old and you've got all these kids how are you and now you're going to school part time and how is this all going to work out and i would always i found a mantra that i used the entire time i was uh, in seminary the five or six years and I would say to people, I have no idea how it's going to work out, but my path is created under my feet. Uh, so I and that worked for me when I was moving from lot of ministry. It was so in- interesting. I would be in seminary with younger people, first career people, and they knew that they could move all across the country, you know, looking for a church uh so I didn't have that option my husband's business was local he was a newspaper publisher here in this south Boston area so I wasn't going to get to be able to move so I thought well maybe I'll end up doing hospice chaplaincy but I would really love to serve a church we ended up moving to Duxbury and about a year and a half later the minister at the church around the corner decided he would take an early retirement. And that's the church I've served in 19 years. So, I mean, it was like, whoa, my path is created under my feet. That sure worked. So when I made the decision to leave First Parish after 19 years, which is a nice long ministry, it's not like I'm leaving them in the lurch. Um, I I looked at the, I I said to myself, if this were the 60s and I was doing civil rights work, I would move to the South. Where the action is, uh, reproductive uh, choice is reproductive rights is pretty strong here in Massachusetts. We have a governor who's very committed to it and a legislature that's very committed to it. So I wasn't there wasn't going to be all that much for me to do here. I knew that I had to move to the south. And I had lived in Texas, I had lived in Mississippi. I'd lived in Georgia. and um I and I'd been to Florida um i guess i can say at one point i was married to a professional baseball player um he would play for the red Sox for a bit and we used to go to spring training so i've been on the west coast of florida uh and i never really was drawn to the west coast of florida but i really enjoyed the east the south coast there so um I looked at the Southern states I had lived in in the past. I hadn't really lived for a long period of time in Florida, but I I'd been there and I lived in Texas. I'd lived in Mississippi. I'd lived in Georgia and I I really felt I couldn't go back to any of those three states. I felt that the uh, the bias and the sense and the prejudice is really very it's much deeper in those states. Um, than it is in Florida. I know everyone is like, how can you move to Florida? But I I think Florida is a place of possibility. I really do. So um yeah, I decided I would move to Florida and I have a couple of friends in Delray Beach, two friends. That's it. And um I flew down there in the spring and looked at places and um I found a community that I would like to live in, and um, yeah, I ended up uh, getting my house ready for market after I finished my last Sunday preaching here at church. And last week, my house here in Duxbury went on the market. And on last Thursday, I sold my house after a week. This you know the market is hot as anything here, and I bought a house, a little a villa they call it, but it's it's say like a townhouse in um delray beach on the same day <laughs> and it was well, perfect i mean it well, all how, came together
0: how do you how do you expect to <clears throat> where this is a federal situation how, how do you expect to you know, let's say make good trouble in florida what is the plan i mean
1: yeah are you, bu- are you
0: going to a to a law firm are you uh creating your own law firm and how is this going to happen
1: you know, for me, always my path is created under my feet, and it's been amazing how this has come to play. Uh, well, first of all, what the what the U.S. Supreme Court did was say this: the states can make the law in this area, so it's all state by state by state. You've watched uh, since the um, the Roe v. Wade was booted out, all these states across our country their state legislatures have passed laws saying that you know no florida for example they say no abortions after six weeks which is really crazy because i've been pregnant three times you don't know you're pregnant at six weeks (laughs) you know anyway uh so it's really not even though it was a federal court that booted out the roe v wade it's all been flung back to the state so All across the country, there's state activity in this area. And um, I just want to add one piece to my story here. It's kind of amazing. So I thought that I would do law, but I love ministry as well. So I figured I would do hospice chaplaincy, a little bit of that when I went to Florida. And um, the head of the ministry for our denomination sent out an email saying, Uh, A lot of the smaller churches didn't find a part-time minister this search during the search period in the spring. So can you all look at the list and see if there's a little church near you that you could serve part-time? And of course, I'm a softy, I looked at the list and I see the Unitarian Universalist congregation of um, Fort Lauderdale, which is about 30 miles away from Delray Beach. They were looking for a half-time minister. And I emailed the guy back at the denominational um, headquarters. And I said, what do you know about these people? And he said, I don't know much. They're a typical uh, small congregation in Florida, but they would love you. And I went, yeah, 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 yeah. you're, you, yeah." And then I emailed him back and I said, a lot of times when ministers are in search, they make a website, they make this big packet up. I was wrapping it up here. I wasn't going to do all that. And I said, I'm not going to do a big shmageggy here. And he said, here's a form, fill it out. And, and I filled out one form, uh, the Department of Ministry sent it to this little congregation in Fort Lauderdale. We had a meeting over Zoom. And the bottom line is I'm. they announced Sunday that I am their new minister as of August 1st. So I have a little church there, which has really been great because over the past couple of months, they have plugged me into some really interesting stuff that's going on in Florida. Um, There's a movement afoot to collect the signatures to put uh, on the 2024 ballot in Florida, a referendum question to amend the Florida state constitution to uh, protect reproductive rights. Make that right in the state constitution. And that type of amendment is really happening all over the country, state by state, not every state. But state by state. So there's that. So I'm really I'm involved in that already. And the latest thing I'm moving to get involved with is there's a an attorney uh, group in Florida that is organizing to go out to faith based communities and talk about why this referendum is so important from the legal perspective. Talk about the the actual law in Florida now with respect to reproductive rights. So I can do that work as an attorney and a faith-based community leader. So it's like, perfect. So at least until 2024, that's the work. I'm gonna be focusing on the referendum question. Uh, That's the work I'm I'm gonna do. And then I'm sure it'll unfold depending on how things go there. But that's that's where I'm focusing. Uh, There's one other thing I'm looking into. There's a um, an argument that's being made here and there across the country. And there's a case in Florida that was recently filed where a congregational minister, she was a female, filed suit in Florida saying uh, this new Uh, law you have really severely restricting a woman's right to choose affects my religious uh, prohibits me from practicing my religion because in my religion I have the right to reproductive choice you know uh, similarly under Roe v. Wade I mean I think nobody would would expect that reproductive choice would include having an abortion when you're you know late term that doesn't Nobody would would buy that. But six weeks is ridiculous. So there are lawsuits being filed all across the country. Not a lot. There's some folks in the Jewish tradition because the Jewish tradition, uh, unless it's a real conservative aspect of the Jewish tradition, does allow for reproductive choice. Um, Certainly Protestant traditions that are progressive do. In fact, my tradition, the Unitarian Universalist, we we kind of got on the bandwagon very early, so I'm actually considering filing my own lawsuit in the state of Florida. Once I get down there, I, I need to be a Florida resident to have standing. But um, do you see the legal argument there, saying uh, you are yeah. you are impinging on my freedom of religion because my religion allows me to make that choice of um, reproductive choice, so. It's kind of like using the religion argument, which I think the Supreme Court had in mind when they booted out Roe v. Wade, we're turning it on his head saying, oh, what about my religion? My religion allows me to have that choice and your law now is, pro- is preventing me from, from doing that. So that's another legal tactic. So there are all these different legal tactics that are springing up across the country. And uh, it's going to be very, very interesting. I'm kind of amazed that the uh, pro-life folks didn't really take serious note of the midterm elections because, uh, boy, no matter where where you are in the spectrum of things, um, you could be a conservative person in many aspects, but still believe in reproductive freedom for women. And we saw that in the midterm elections. I think that the issue is going to be very critical in 2024. I honestly do. It's, as I say, it is the first time in the history of our country where a right has been rescinded by the U.S., a right that was uh, supported for almost 50 years. It was like six months shy of 50 years or something. uh, Was... Rescinded by the by the U.S. Supreme Court, and it and it's such an important right for women. Um, even if women are not in the marketplace or professional or whatever they, you know, women have the choice to be mothers, and that's a profession unto itself. But they still, so many women support other women's right to to do what they want in the marketplace, and that has to include reproductive freedom it has to so um, I'm super excited Uh, I may be the only person moving to Florida who's like this super excited (laughs) because so many people are not too excited about Florida but um, it's just perfect for me it's uh, it's uh, it doesn't have that generational stuff going that some of the deep south states do that I experienced that I just couldn't take on it's to me it's more it's more fluid, believe it or not. And, um, yeah, so I'm real excited.
0: Oh, that's good. Um, the station that, you know, normally we don't talk politics or anything because I'd like to stay like Switzerland a little bit and be on the neutral side. Yep. Yep. And, I want to make sure that that's clear to our listeners. Uh, Yep. Everybody has a difference of opinion. They do. Um, and I, I know you have the 70 percent majority. Right. Uh, your your opinion. And so that's right. And I'm being a man. I, I personally feel that I have no right whatsoever to tell a woman what she can and cannot do. And yeah. I think that that's that's my position as a courage to hope. What I like to talk about is, is how you your your passion for this for this move and uh, it's very important that um, and I totally agree with you that the 2024 election will revolve around that and not around some of the other things that some of the current candidates think that is so important. I mean, right. Um, I, again, I, I know a lot of them are talking about woke. Um, I don't even know what it means, to be honest with you. It's like uh, it's not a big deal, but some people want to make it a big deal. <clears throat> but, you know, the big deal is paying attention to what's going on in the world, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. not what's going on at Disneyland, you Mm -hmm. know? So um, Mm -hmm. that's a little more of a priority. Um,
1: And you can actually look worldwide and there are still so many countries where women don't have the rights that we did have up until Roe v. Wade got booted out. You know, uh, women in, in some of our large, large countries in the world still are in it a bad position i mean we talk about buddhism women in india have a hard time you know women women are still not treated the way they should be their uh, parents and and brothers and all that are you know kind of have the, it's a very patriarchal society and all that so if we're going to try to improve the position of girls and women across the world we need to start at home <laughs> you know yeah I, mean? I,
0: I i agree there are I mean, I've, I've seen what it's like in the Middle East for women. And um, yep. it's, as I'd say, in a simple term, it's pretty pathetic.
1: You yeah. It's yep.
0: pretty, it having to have to cover your face and cover your yeah. head and all of that stuff. And, um, yeah. and you can't even go out alone. You know, that's another whole thing, too.
1: Exactly. Uh. We have had a very interesting experience at First Parish um, when the uh, Afghan refugees started leaving Afghanistan uh, a year ago, two years ago this August, we decided we would offer our parsonage, which is where I was living, but I had bought a house, so I was getting ready to move uh, to an Afghan refugee family. And it's been so interesting to watch this family um, in the United States here. So they came to us, I'll never forget the night they arrived from Logan Airport. Uh, we didn't we only found we partnered with Catholic Charities, which is a really good resettlement agency. They have a lot of experience doing that and they were as helpful as they could be but they usually would resettle you know maybe 20,000 people from one particular country they were given 85,000 people over the course of a couple of months from afghanistan so they were stretched so thin so they they provided some assistance to us at the beginning they picked the family up at the airport brought the family to the parsonage and I remember very vividly the family arriving a little bit after midnight and we didn't really know how many kids there were going to be. And there was dad and mom and there were five kids. And I looked at mom and I said, whoops, we're going to have six pretty soon. She was like seven months pregnant and companioning that family for the last 18 months has been so enlightening. I watch that there are two little girls in the family and, um, you know, that public school system here in Duxbury just embraced them. Our superintendent has been so uh, hospitable to the family. The kids have just flourished and the little girls and the little, you know, they're on the same level as the, as the boys and the mom, they are Muslim and she does wear the scarf, but she has kind of come into her own as well. You know, she feels really empowered the mom and dad have been learning English. The kids learn English at school and their English is fabulous, but I've watched them. And uh, I must say the dad is kind of an enlightened 21st century guy. He um, in so- sometimes in a Muslim family, the, the, the father can be rather patriarchal and he's not at all. He really admires everything his wife is doing and the fact that she speaks English better than him. And he says, Uh, hopefully they'll get their driver's licenses over this next six months or so. And he always said, she'll do better than me at driving. And he cares with the cares, you know, he'll lift up the kids and play with them. But um, still, um, I had to go down there a couple of days ago because a a repairman was coming to the house to fix the refrigerator. And in their tradition, a woman cannot be in the same room with a man, not her husband, unless her husband is there or another woman. So over the course of the last almost two years, I've been the other woman a load of times oh. when <laughs> when you know somebody has come to the house, it's a male and her husband's not home, he's working, I need to be the other woman there. So even, you know, it's interesting, as liberated as she is, she's from Afghanistan, and she's probably way more liberated than her, her girlfriends back home. They're still, you know, you're brought up to feel "Mm, I can't be totally on my own. And her daughters are not going to feel that way at all. I watch them, they'll, they'll, they'll be fine. So that's what we want to move towards in our country and our world is liberation, freedom for everybody, including women. (laughs) So, yeah.
0: Yeah. The American way, I guess what you're saying, the American. Well, it used to be the American
1: way, you know, we're doing a little backsliding here and that's why reproductive freedom is so important. I mean, you, you know, Included in reproductive freedom is abortion and contraception. Uh, Can you imagine how women's lives would change significantly if there were no contraception? You know, uh, I can't, I can't imagine my mother. I have, we have a blended family of six, but that's you know, I was divorced. My husband was divorced. We brought kids to the table. My mother had six kids. Her mother was one of 14 kids. So, without a little, without contraception, women, you know, they have a difficult time being in the marketplace because they tend to have a lot of kids. And um, I can't imagine if we go back to that, that'll significantly change uh, women's lives. I mean, in our own family, we have three boys and three girls. Uh, one daughter is a, do- a physician, another daughter is a computer engineer, another daughter is an educator. You know, their lives would be significantly different if they didn't have the ability to kind of manage how many children they had. So I, you know, that's why I'm that's why I'm doing this um uh, good trouble work.
0: <laughs> well, and you you know, and you're not starting at a young age doing this. I mean, anybody can figure out if you have.
1: I'm 52. <laughs> yeah over and over again
0: <laughs> yeah, just sticking sticking to that, you know
1: <laughs> yeah, but you know what I um work, you know this I work like you, I work out like a hound, I watch my food, I don't drink, I don't smoke and that's so I can, you know, while I'm on this earth I can I can really contribute from until the moment of my last breath, God willing. So um yeah, I'm I'm good to go. I am good to go.
0: How many days a week do you do Pilates?
1: Um, I used to do it five that my Pilates teacher just retired. So I just did it this morning. Now I do it two or three, but I actually own Pilates equipment so I can do it at home as well. So, um, and I did some weight training for a couple of years. My weight trainer actually moved too. but I'm just a workout fiend. And I think that, um, and I watch what I eat, and I don't. I don't drink alcohol any longer. I I used to love a glass of wine, but um, it just doesn't make me feel great any longer. So I um, there are lots of interesting alcohol, non-alcohol uh, beverages out there now that have um, herbs and that sort of thing, and I'm I'm leading that way. But um, yeah, I watch I watch what I do. I, I get my sleep. I, you know, I last, I haven't seen midnight in decades. (laughs) So, you know, but that's how I can do what I do. I'm like, you know, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. You have lots of energy. I saw midnight last night. So I know you
1: did. Now what's it like?
0: (laughs) Well, well, somebody called me this morning at nine o'clock and said, Hey you. So anyway, well, um, I'll
1: tell you, I don't see midnight, but I see four thirty most every morning. I mean, you yeah, know, so. so. And the other piece to it, too, I think, Tony, when we do these things, again, it goes back to our spiritual practice of, you know, making our ourselves peaceful. Um, so you're coming at it with a from a place of peace and joy and delight. I mean, I am delighted to be doing this. Um, and my family thinks it's fine. My kids are kind of scattered. I'm actually moving closer to the daughter in Savannah, who's the doctor and has two little kids. And I'll get to do some weekend babysitting for her when she's on call one one weekend a month. So, um, yeah, it's all good. But, yeah. I,
0: well, I was going to say, you, you have to have energy to do what you want and you have to be um i'm very impressed at how how you stick to you stay focused and you stick to the point and you make sure that you it's going to happen and uh, you, you're very positive about you're going to do this thing and you're going to make some changes and yeah uh, and if you have some setbacks i'm sure you won't be you'll be discouraged but you won't give up yeah nope. that's uh
1: as I say, my path is always created under my feet. So I'm just good to go. Uh, you know, my, my task is to stay in shape so I can walk that path. But yeah, I'm excited.
0: That's it's really good. And um, we we will miss you in this area. Uh, I'm sure I'll be me, back to visit. <clears throat> let's go back a little bit. You were a part of uh, a group called Duxbury Facts. Yep. And. That's more in line to what we've been doing here on the state, this program. What what did you find in Duxbury Facts that you, you found good and what didn't you find good? You know, you, I know you're opinionated about that.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, um, we started Duxbury Facts in 2015, which was kind of the opioid crisis and um, really almost out of business, uh, for that little age organization, because when we started, we were one of the few games around that was focusing on, on the uh, opioid crisis. But in those years, which is what, eight years? Yeah. Eight years. Um, so much more attention has been given. Well, people like you who bring lawsuits against, you know, the big pharma. there's just been so much attention to, uh, substance misuse and I, I like the fact that we say substance misuse. It used to be substance abuse. There was an insinuation that there was, you know, it was a, a flaw in someone if they were using uh substances, but we know now scientifically there that's just not true. So um I'm gonna say we kind of normalized drug misuse. Um, because which is a good thing. It, it it came out of the closet. We shone the light on it, we put resources to it, we started understanding it. And I know um the lawsuits that have been filed are generating a ton of money, and uh each town in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts is receiving money from uh through the attorney general's office from the lawsuit, a successful series of a couple of lawsuits. So Duxbury Facts is really probably going to be put out of business because here in the town of Duxbury, the town has actually set up a whole little um, uh, committee that the money's going to be funneled through. And every year they'll kind of look at how they're going to spend that money. And, um, you know, the number of overdoses is down. Narcan has made a tremendous difference. I carry Narcan in my car. We can all get Narcan now very easily. So that's made a tremendous difference. And uh, the bottom line is um, what year did you lose, Matt? Tony? 2014. 2014. <clears throat> uh, the landscape has changed so dramatically since that time. I mean, the one of the one of the first things that happened was that physicians were told you can't just Overprescribe opioids when someone has an injury or a surgery uh, and that's very regulated. That was, I mean, just so many things happen at the same time. And um, I know for people, parents who lost uh, kids to during the opioid crisis, you, I'm sure there are loads of frustrations, but for someone who was a little bit of, uh, separate from that experience, I saw progress and dramatic progress over the last eight years. And we have a ways to go for sure. But um, as I say, there's an expression in Buddhism shining the light on something. And I think we have shown the light on uh, the complexity of substance uh, misuse and um, yeah.
0: Well, um, actually in Massachusetts, unfortunately we've
1: gone the wrong way. Have we, we really?
0: Yeah. Yeah, we now, we were at 2000 deaths in 2021 and 2022 were at 2300
1: you know some of yeah. that i bet is uh pandemic post-pandemic stuff i think the it's pandemic a, just really... the
0: introduction of fentanyl to
1: oh that every drug. too you're right yeah Fent-
0: fentanyl poisoning is now the number one reason why people overdose and uh, certain amounts of fentanyl are so strong that Narcan can't reverse it.
1: Exactly. And, that's exactly. So,
0: and for that's, people who don't know what Narcan is, it's a drug that reverses the, the um, opioid drug and opens up the arteries and, and allows the person to come back very right. quickly. Yep. Um, it's almost like a shock or something. But it, it does, it reverses it very quickly because the opioid, um, when you have an overdose, everything is being shut down. The brain is right. being shut down. The heart's being shut down. All the involuntary um, processes that go on in the body um, shut down, and so you have to reverse that. And That's what happens. Um, but I was going to say, with all this money that's coming in and across the country, it's coming in in various different ways to different states. that are doing all. Oh, everybody's doing something different. Yeah. So I'm happy to say that my group that I'm a member of, which is called Fed Up, we now we're now becoming the watchdogs to see how people spend the money. That's good. Yep. <clears throat> we're going to make sure that that it's intended to be to work with the opioid crisis, help people in recovery, give the money to prisons especially, where 80% of the people who are incarcerated have a drug-related problem, and that's why they're committing crimes. Yep. They're trying to Makes keep sense. their habit going. Yeah. So, so we're trying to get that money in because we don't want anybody building a highway with that money. Right, that's, that's, <laughs> which that's, could that's, happen. That's, that's what are we going to do about the
1: fentanyl? I've wondered about that. I mean, it's so deadly. It's um, it's so unforgiving.
0: Well, we what what found out from we had a pharmacist on last week, and we found out that fentanyl is so small that if somebody does bring it across the border, um, it's very hard to detect it. Okay, oh, and and you could put you could put enough fentanyl. In a eighteen wheeler truck somewhere, in with a bunch of other products, and something the size of a milk cotton um, could could kill thousands of people, and you wouldn't even know it was there. You know, so it's yeah, it's, a, it's most of the fentanyl that comes in, um, a lot of it is comes in with Americans because they're not because they go right through across the border with no problem, and okay. the cartels cart, the cartels have to be stopped. There's no question about that. Right. That's that's the first order of business. But the second order is let's let's put people in a position now where they don't have to uh where they don't have the desire for, for fentanyl.
1: Right. That's that's, that's true, the biggest true. thing.
0: Let's if, if they didn't have any customers, they wouldn't bring any product over. Right. Know? So that's that's number two. You gotta get that resolved. You gotta figure out so they they do have a thing called MAT, which is the which is a law that's been signed in. Called, it's medical assisted treatment, and the medical assisted treatment now allows doctors can get re, registered. So they used to be, if they would get suboxone or buprenorphine, they could only have two patients. That's all they were allowed. Now wow. it's endless. Now it's endless. They could take care of 30, 40 people at at a, at a time, and you know, like right now, the the whole methadone thing. Where you got to sign, stand in line like a, like a criminal at six o'clock in the morning or seven o'clock in the morning, and if you yeah. miss one, if you miss one appointment, you got to go back and start all over again and pay them another five hundred dollars to get yourself back in the in the back in the line again. Is mm-hmm. uh, that's to me is an absurd way of doing it. Uh, yeah. The the drugstore should be allowed to administer it. Yeah, and it, and that that is something that we're working on. So that you could go to a just go to Walgreens or CBS and have a have a druggist there who works with a doctor, and and the druggist is allowed to give the administer it, and they know what how many CCs and milligrams or whatever you're going to do, and and that's the way it should be. That's mm-hmm. the um, um, the the more conservative the, to me the better approach. We have to stop. We have to uh, get rid of the stigma so much. Right. You know.
1: Well, I think it. we've begun to get rid of the stigma. I, I really think since... Oh, it's the,
0: better. It's definitely better. Yeah.
1: And that's one of the things I saw during the course of uh, my time at Duxbury Facts is that we, you know, people understand, again, that this isn't a personal failing. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, it scares me when you can synthetically make something like fentanyl that's incredibly powerful and, like you say, really so hard to detect coming across the border. I don't know. It's, um, it's scary.
0: Right. And again, people in America can actually make it. It's not that it's not that complicated. You can can obtain (laughs) all the ingredients. I know.
1: Yeah. So you have
0: to, what you really have to do is you have to eliminate the demand. Yeah. You know, and they're putting it now in, even in, in uh, marijuana you know, and cocaine. Yeah. Um, yep. I know somebody who um, had it, it was in the c- cocaine that they were taking. They didn't know it was in there. Well, and no. that, that person overdosed and never came back. Mm. So uh, it's just, uh, it's somebody that indirectly that we know together. So mm-hmm. that, that happened to about three months ago, you know, and you just, you uh, you know, you, you see this happening and you say, you're like, you know, it's if you if you buy, you can't be buying pills off the street. No. But at the same time, at the same time, if 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 the world makes it so difficult, you know, that's another the big story on the Patriot Ledger last week about safe injection sites. Mm-hmm. And and we need to open them. We need yeah. to open them so that if, if until you can get into recovery. And you're going to go after, you're going to, you're going to do what you're going to do. They can't, they can't stop. People need to know they can't stop or they'll get dope sick, so sick that. Right. uh, So you have to do something in the, in the interim so that we need safe injection sites and they need to be regulated with a nurse or a doctor.
1: How many places across the country, how many states have injection sites? One. California? New York. Really? Okay.
0: New huh. York City. New York City has two. Now there are many states now that have just approved it.
1: Okay, I, yeah, good. Many good. states. So Rhode,
0: Rhode Island approved it. Huh. Um, it's still against Oregon. Approved it. It's still against federal law, though. So that's where the state has to uh, come in, and appro- uh, they have to officially approve it. And I, I think it will get approved. Maybe in this, in this Congress in Massachusetts, it should get approved this year.
1: Right. Uh, that's good. More,
0: more, more Healy is in favor of it. Yep. So, yep. so, that's it's a big start, you know? Yep. So, um, so
1: complex, but I, I feel hopeful because it's come out of the closet. You know, I mean, 20 years ago, there weren't any programs, there weren't resources. People were, would hide the fact that they were, you know, had a, a drug issue. And at least that's not the way it is now. You know, that that's a giant step forward to, in my view.
0: And the doctors are prescribing less.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yes,
0: that that's a that's a big help. And, again, and the, do- I- the
1: doctors understand that they need to take responsibility in this whole thing and that they're over prescribing was what led to the problems in the first place.
0: Yeah. Right. And my my bill that I've now signed over to Re- Representative Fioli and your mm-hmm. stepson Josh um, is it's called the right to know act. And that's to parents where child is 18 or under and their parent has to be notified if the doctor is trying to give them a prescription for an opioid and the parent has to sign, parent has to sign off on it. And they're signing off the fact that they know that this is a highly addictive narcotic and similar to heroin. So when they hear that, Oh, the first thing the parents are going to say well, what are the alternatives
1: exactly
0: yep Yep. that's in states like New Hampshire, Rhode Island, New Jersey they passed this law and they have not increased in the past 2 or 3 years they've stayed okay. the same or they've re- been they've reduced because teenagers are not getting a get getting a taste of opioids mm-hmm. and people don't understand oh my son's getting a, my wisdom teeth out well okay it's painful no kidding. I had two piece, two teeth. I had to extract not too long ago. Yeah, it's very painful, but 800 milligrams of ibuprofen works just as well.
1: Exactly. And,
0: yeah. And it's over, and it's over within 24 hours anyway. Yeah. So don't don't give it to anybody that's going to be, you know, potentially. Who you don't know who's going to be the most. Half the people right. say, Oh, I, I hated the effect of them." Well, the other half might say, "Wow, this is pretty great. I, exactly, I, I, I could use some more of this. You know, I've been, I've been depressed, and this is lifting me up.
1: You know, yep. So, so is that? Uh, it's a law that's already wending its way through the state house.
0: It okay. is. It okay. is. We we made it out of committee last time,
1: last mm-hmm. session,
0: but they never voted on it. Maybe so next my, year. Yep. Well, my organization now is we've hired. We actually hired a lobbyist. And mm-hmm. we're going to the committee members, and we're going to sit and meet them all directly so they get a better understanding of yep, it. Yep, yep. So that, that's, our, that's our goal for this year. That's great. Um, so I noticed we're just about out of time, and I really wish you well going to Florida.
1: Thank you. And if you're ever in Delray, come by and say hello. <laughs>
0: I might. I never know. I'd be I know. With you, you
1: place. never know. You're all you're all over the place. <laughs>
0: I used to be. I'm not quite so much anymore, but I yeah. I used to be. But I'd be down there for baseball sometime. So, and I, I understand you're keeping the same phone number.
1: I am. So, now, we right. won't be giving out my phone number right now, Tony. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> no, I
0: know. We're not going to do that. So <laughs> we wish you a happy and safe move and good luck. Thank you. Making, Thank you. Um, making good trouble good and, uh, good okay all so right for the last 55 minutes or so we've been talking to katherine cullen who's on a mission and she definitely has courage to hope and that's why we named the show courage to hope and this is tony lagreca we want to thank you for your time and everybody that's listening till next time
1: This is Larry with a question. Are you stuck at a dead end sales job with little support and appreciation? Are you bored selling a little bit of siding and cars? WMEX has an opening for a few good salespeople who want to be great and make a lot of money. Radio sales is not required, a plus, but we will teach you. We will train you. We will support you. You will only report to the local owners of WMEX. So if you're good with a desire to be great and make a ton of money, this is your opportunity to join the WMEX Radio sales family. Please email your resume to Sales at gmail.com. That's Sales at gmail.com. And if you're one of the chosen few, we'll make you an offer you can't refuse listen to wmex anytime anywhere on odyssey odyssey is your new audio home for all the music news sports and podcasts that matter to you that's
0: a-u-d-a-c-y